Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And today is a beautiful, gorgeous, freaking hot day. And the reason I always start with that is because I love the idea of this show being all over the world. And I tell you how I'm experiencing my day. And you look out your window and you go, no, it's not. It's a blizzard. So (laughs) I like to give you a picture of me as much as I give you a picture of my guests. So my son's over at the dining room table eating a stew made out of uh, chicken and beef because that's what I had left in the fridge. And I am sitting on the floor beside the pool table about to talk to the most wonderful man. But before I get doing that, I want to remind you to stay to the end of the show where we will have stories from the road. And in keeping with the theme of the day, I have a book of mine that I want to give away because it'll match and you'll understand soon. You know how we always have a question or I'm supposed to always have a question, but half the time I forget. So today's question is, can one man or, or woman, one human being, make a difference in this world? And I can tell you the answer before we even do the show. The answer is yes, of course they can. And this guest, today's guest, is so special. I'm so honored that he said yes and is willing to join us. He's special in the way that makes you want to take off your hat, put it over your heart, and say thank you to somebody. It's, uh, you know, I have great guests all the time. That's true. But this one is very heartfelt. When I, when he said he would do the show, I was like, literally, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So, um, give an ear, pay attention. There's a beautiful story here and one that I hope will lead you into maybe making a difference in your small community, in your family, just in yourself or in the world that, that you work in. So big, small, um, it doesn't matter, but make a difference that uh, changes everything for the better because right now we're in a world that's crying out for that. All right, so let me tell you about the guest. Um, oh, I forgot to say, okay, okay, the great guest giveaway is my book. And you'll get that in a minute. Okay, so I took care of all the beginning stuff. We get to talk about Frank Shanklitz. So Frank's story is going to be mostly told by him. But what I do want to tell you is that I had an experience where I was in a grocery store and a man turned to my son, who at the time was 18 years old and very special needs, he's autistic and a bunch of other stuff, and and said, uh, your mama should have put you down on the day you were born. He didn't know my son could understand him, I suppose, and he didn't know I was with him because I was a few steps behind, but I'm like, sir, sir, he understood everything you said. And 
after that, he says, well, I hope he did, and he starts walking really fast. And I'm standing there thinking, how do I model the right thing? How do I make a difference here? Do the right thing for my son. Do the right thing for this man. Do the right thing for the world. And how do I not kill this person? So I'm, you know, my brain's full of all these ideas, and I'm kind of following him, and I'm bringing my son along, and I see him go up to his wife. And I'm like, okay, I've got him. I'll tell, I'll tell the story in front of his wife and let her deal with it. So that's exactly what I did. I went up and I said, I'm, you know, ma'am, I think maybe you could help your husband understand that special needs people that are very challenged can often under, understand what you say. And to, for him to turn to my son and say, your mama should have put you down on the day you were born. Um, and of course, her face turns white and she looks at her husband. She's very upset. And I said, and by the way, just so you know, he's an adopted boy, and he was locked in a closet for two years, so his story is very extreme. He doesn't need to be traumatized again. And then, you know, she apologized, and he's looking like he's about to go into the doghouse, and I sort of clapped my hands and walked away and said, there, we did it. For years, I tried to think of a way to change the perception of people who don't care, who aren't in our choir, who don't love our people the way that we do, and who will value human beings that are special. Give them true value. And I did find a way, and I'll tell you about that at the end, and that's related to the book. I'm telling you this story because my need for that led me to work for Make-A-Wish, and that introduces Frank Shankwitz. Frank has a backstory on how he got there, but the real gift to me is that he was very instrumental in making Make-A-Wish a big deal. So let's begin with saying hello, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Lynette. Yeah, I'm I'm so touched. So, you know, it's one thing to say you're related to Make-A-Wish, and I know you've moved on and are doing other things now, but it's another thing to tell people your story, how you became who you are, and why. So let's. can we start there? Can we start with what's your backstory, Frank? How did you end up with Make-A-Wish, or do you want me to read it off your bio? Well, no, I can, I can give you the backstory. And uh, a very young child, uh, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and my mother divorced my father when I was very young and I was leaving, living with our grandparents and everything was fine and at about five years old my mother reappeared and kidnapped me off a playground and took me on an adventure, her adventure uh, that would take us to Arizona and she was uh, just working job to job at the time for the five years from that real nice existence uh, we lived in the back of a car. We lived in tents. We lived in some pretty shoddy houses. Uh, food was always an issue. And by the age of 10 years old, we ended up in a little town called Seligman, Arizona, on Route 66. And a lot of people may not recognize the name Seligman, Arizona, but if they ever saw the Disney animated uh, feature Cars, Seligman, Arizona is uh, Radiator Springs from that movie. That's what this model done. Just wow. a little town... Railroad town, cowboy town. Um, and when we arrived there, just no money whatsoever. And some people took us in, and for the next almost year, we slept on their kitchen floor, uh, always trying to find food. Uh, at 10 years old, I started working full-time as a dishwasher. And some, so many people in town helped us out, uh, bringing us food, bringing us beans, tortillas, and some of the Mexican population. But the biggest influence in my life at that time 
was the gentleman that owned a little, uh, like a, a Dairy Queen type store called the Snowcap, a Mexican gentleman named Juan Delgadillo. And he just kept encouraging me, Frank, all these negative things that are going on, turn them to positive. And someday when you can, give back. And that wasn't a term in the 50s that anybody had ever really heard of. And, and I said, Juan, what do you mean give back? We can't even afford to eat. He said, no, you don't understand. So many people are helping you. Mm-hmm. She's in her yard over there. She brings you beans to Cartes. You can sure go over there and clean that yard up. Mr. Ortega, he's trying to paint the caboose that's going to be now the family home. You could help him scrape and paint. And, and that was the first introduction to giving back. And it made me feel good that these people were helping me. I could help them. Oh, my gosh, I um, love that person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was my mentor and friend for years until he passed away recently. And it was a, it was a really a nice existence from living. We, we finally uh, obtained a little old travel trailer that some uh, people helped us fix up and at least was a place to sleep, a roof over our head. It did not have a working bathroom. We had to use facilities otherwhere else in town. But, again, just this poor existence. And then it started in seventh grade. My mother left me again, and she said, I'm moving. I can't afford to keep you. Uh, you have a job. Um, you can find somebody to live with in town. And um, off she went. And that would be devastating, I think, for both children. But, again, this Mr. Delgadillo said, learn how to turn the negatives to a positive. And I said, I don't understand that. And he said, you lived in a trailer that had really no heat, um, no bathroom facilities, and now you're going to live with Mrs. Sanchez, paying her room and board, but you have enough, you make enough money to do that, but all of a sudden you're going to live in a home that has, you're going to have your own bedroom, your own shower. She had the first television set in this little town of Philippe, Arizona. And he said, plus she's the best cook in town. So he taught me, he taught me how all these negatives to look at it as a positive. And that was great. And I always remembered that lesson. And then going on through high school, uh, uh, graduated high school, went into the U.S. Air Force. Uh, after the Air Force, my list was up. Uh, went to work for Motorola in um, Phoenix, Arizona, and took advantage of the uh, GI Bill to get college education and was an assistant engineer there. But I just didn't care for that type of life. Um, the suit and tie in the big cities. And some friends of mine were on the Arizona Highway Patrol at the time and encouraged me to uh, try and sign up for the patrol, which I did. Uh, passed all the background checks and uh, oral boards. And in 1972, started a career with the Arizona Highway Patrol. And during that time, I was stationed on a little town called Yuma, Arizona, and I was introduced to Special Olympics with special need kids, and they asked if I would be a coach because also a role model for these children, which I just really enjoyed doing. And as I was doing that, I'm starting to think, Juan, maybe I'm starting to give back now. Every, every minute I could spare, I would, I would give to these children. And then in 1974, the Arizona Highway Patrol started a new motorcycle unit, um, that they were going to start a 10-man squad that worked all over the state of Arizona, and I was asked to join that squad. And, in fact, we trained with California Highway Patrol in Sacramento. And our uniforms, our motorcycles, our equipment were basically just identical, except, obviously, ours in Arizona. 
And like I said, we traveled the whole state of Arizona, two weeks to one town, two weeks to another. And we would go into town, and all of a sudden the kids that were kind of afraid of us or what, whatever, all of a sudden started yelling, hey, Ponce, hey, John. So we took advantage of that and asked in our free time if we could go to the local grade schools and talk about bicycle safety, which the kids could really care less about, but they loved getting on our motorcycles and playing with the lights and the sirens, and it was the greatest PR <laughs> school going. And again, I'm starting to think, Juan, I'm, I'm giving back here a little bit. In uh, 1978, I was involved in a high-speed chase with a drunk driver, and another drunk driver came through a stop sign right in front of me, and I hit him at 80 miles an hour. And um, they said the crash was spectacular, and I was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, my partner tried to revive me. He couldn't do it. He, he called in the code. The officer killed the line of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, an off-duty emergency room nurse from California happened to roll up on the scene, identified herself, and asked my partner, can I please try? Can I please try and bring him back? Which she did for five minutes performing CPR heart massage and brought me back to life. And oh, it took God. about six months to recover from that accident, uh, skull fracture, a traumatic brain injury broken bones, this and that. But it was the first time we'd done any type of counseling uh, with our department, with a psychologist, and talking to him to make sure I was okay back to duty. But he said, you know, you, you were killed, you were brought back to life, and there's a reason. There's a reason God spared you, and you have to find that reason. And going a year and a half later, in 1980, I received a phone call from my commander saying, we have just learned of a seven-year-old boy named Chris who has leukemia and only has a couple weeks to live for his doctors. And he loves the TV show Chips. And he tells his mother when he grows up, he wants to be a motorcycle officer just like Chips. And we're going to set up a special day for Chris, and we would like you to meet him and be involved because of your work for children and obviously because you're a motorcycle officer. Now, I have never met this little boy, but with permission of his doctors and his mother, our state police helicopter picked him up at his hospital. He's just coming off IVs and flew into our headquarters building where I was standing by with our motorcycle. I expected our paramedics to help this little boy out. Uh, again, I, I knew he only had a couple weeks to live. This little red pair of speakers jumps out of that helicopter, runs over, hi, I'm Chris, a high five. <laughs> And he's just fascinated. As far as he's concerned, he's looking at chips. I had red hair at the time, a very tan, so I could have been Poncho John. <laughs> he was just, and, and I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, here's a little boy that came off IVs, and he's running around like a typical seven-year-old. But I, I also noticed his mother. She's got tears in her eyes, and I can see that she's thinking the same thing. But Chris went on that day to become the first and only honorary high patrol officer in the history of the Arizona High Patrol, we're talking 36 years now, complete with his own badge, his own certificate, uh, a tour of the headquarters building the armory. What little kid would love that? And, in fact, got to go home that night. His doctor was with him. He said, I don't understand. His vitals are so good. Uh, let's just let him go back to his comfort zone, his home. And we were pretty happy with what we had done, and we started talking and said, a highway patrolman needs a uniform. And in those days, they were custom-made. And we went to the uniform shop just as it was closing and said, we have this little boy, seven years old, about this high, this wide. Will you make a uniform for him? 
two ladies spent all night making this custom uniform for Chris. The next day, again, with the permission of Chris's house, I led several other motorcycles, cars, uh, red lights and sirens, you can imagine, and neighbors. Chris comes running out. We present him with his uniform. He is just beaming. Runs in the house, changes, comes out just strutting because now he's official Highway Patrol officer. Oh, he came to me and touched the wings on my uniforms, this, that specialty wings that motorcycle officers wear, and he says, what I really want to be is a motorcycle officer. How do I do that? And I just started teasing Chris. I told him about the training we do and this and that, and I said, if only you had a motorcycle, we'd set up uh, traffic cones right in your driveway, and we'd test you right now. Chris was a step ahead of me. He runs in the house and goes riding out on a little battery-operated motorcycle that his mother had got for him in place of a wheelchair. <laughs> and this boy, this boy was just ready to go. In fact, he had on a helmet that we had given him, and he had on the aviator glasses like we wear, just serious as can be. He set up the cones. He ran through it. He came back. Am I a motorcycle officer now? Did I pass? Yes, you did, Chris. When do I get my wings? Well, those were special made, too, by a jeweler. And I said, we'll get those for you. It's going to take three or three days, but we'll get them made as quick as we can. Chris got to stay home again that night. Two days later, I get a call. I'm, the wings are ready. As I pick up the motorcycle wings from the jeweler, I get another call. Chris is in the hospital in a coma. He's probably not going to survive today. I received permission to go to the hospital. His uniform was hanging right by his bed. Just as I pinned on those motorcycle wings, he came out of the coma. He looked at me. He smiled. Am I official motorcycle officer now? Yes, you are, Chris. He oh just started God. giggling. He asked for his uniform. He's touching the wings. He's showing it to his mom, and he died a couple hours later. Oh, on the Frank. Point, That's amazing. We learned that Chris was going to be buried in a little town in Kewanee, Illinois. And our commanders asked if I would go back and give him a full police funeral, which we did. We were joined by Illinois State Police, County Police, City Police, giving him a full escort. In fact, Chris was buried in uniform. His grave marker reads, Chris Gracious, Arizona Trooper. Flying back from Illinois to Arizona, I started thinking, here's a little boy who had a wish, and we made it happen. Why can't we do that for other children? And that's when the idea of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was born. Oh, Frank, oh, my gosh, that's so touching. Okay, I have to do the mid-break, and then we're going to get a little bit more info from you. But holy cow, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, before I go to break, I want to point out that uh, actually Frank Shankwitz is a doctor. He got a honorary doctorate for public service. And if ever there was a man who deserves to be a doctor of public service, it's Frank. We're blessed to have him. And he wasn't kidding when he said he's not really all suit and tie type of guy. He wears a great big cowboy hat and he's a really big guy. So you cannot miss Frank Shankowitz if you ever go to an event. All you have to do is look over the heads of the people and say, aha, there's the hat. That must be Frank. All right. You are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I am Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And today is a gorgeous, beautiful day and my son just finished his stew and he's sitting listening to the story. All right. Um, Remember to stay to the very end of the show where we'll have stories from the road. 
although this is like story after story, you might not be able to take another one. I might let you off the hook. And okay, okay, okay. I'm the great guest giveaway, as we've been doing lately. Okay, sometimes it's better to just have one guest because they're just so dynamic that it's, um, you know, nobody wants to follow it. So we're going to come back to Frank Shankwitz, who was the creator of Make-A-Wish, and we just heard the story of how it was inspired. So now let's find out a few of the nitty-gritty details. Frank, I mean, it's one thing to get an inspiration to have this beautiful moment with somebody and and do something great in the world, and granted, your whole life was kind of, uh, you were set up for looking for the silver lining and, and making things positive, but... It's a lot of work to actually make something a reality. So just just touch a little bit on that for us. How did you go from this thought to such an enormous um, undertaking? It, it took a lot of work and a lot of help, obviously. Um, and this was the days before Internet. So how do you start a nonprofit? Uh, you go to the library, you, you pull out the books. Um, it's so much easier now. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the libraries. And then the biggest thing was to recruit people that, that believed in that idea. Uh, majority of the officers that were involved at the time just didn't think it was a good idea would work. And it took me a couple months to find four other people because I needed four board or five board members total, including myself, to start a nonprofit. And we finally found the right people for that. And I ran this out of my kitchen. Uh, actually, for the first years or so. Oh, my goodness, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, I would never have did. thought of Make-A-Wish as run out of <laughs> out of Frank Shankwitz's kitchen. Were you wearing your hat? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. That's the trademark. <laughs> but, uh, again, I had a lot of friends. I had an attorney that was a friend, and that's not an oxymoron. An attorney can be a friend. Uh, that helped me get things together. I had another friend that was a CPA. He helped me we get all the paperwork for the 501c3. And it actually only took us six months to get our, our official uh, nonprofit status. We granted our first official wish. Wow. And when we did that, the press was following us, which was so great. And after our first official wish, a little boy that wanted to go to Disneyland, which is a whole different story, but uh, 60 minutes, uh, NBC Dateline, and again, like, this is before Internet, just started following us all around because they had never heard of anything like this. And donations became extremely easy to get. We were able to start doing wishes for other children, and uh, it's grown and grown, obviously, now worldwide with over 350,000 wishes granted so far uh, in 36 countries, 64 chapters in the United States. Uh, just this amazing growth, but it took a lot, a lot of people to make it happen. Do you know what I like best about that is as much as it's a beautiful thing, and I know because I hands-on helped and was a wish <laughs> one time, um, I I love that as soon as people saw what you were doing and saw how fantastic it was, they jumped on it. And the reason I love that is because we live in a world where everybody's always rolling their eyes saying, you know, nobody, the good stuff never gets attention. And it's not true, is it? And one of the things that I think gave us instant credibility was um, I never took a salary. Because being a police officer, we're going to be scrutinized right away. What's he up to? So I never took a salary. 100% of donations that we received in the beginning went straight to the foundation. 
Wow. Which gave us, again, the credibility. Now, after about three years, I had to make a career choice. Uh, am I going to run the foundation? Am I going to be a police officer? I couldn't do both. And the fact my commanders kind of said, you've got to make a career choice. And I love what I was doing as a police officer. But like the experts tell you, surround yourself with the experts. Hire the people. And it's the first time we hired uh, the professional in the nonprofit industry. Uh, that obviously made it grow to what it is today. That leads me right to my next question. So you grew this enormous thing, this beautiful, beautiful thing that still exists, but you've moved on. So what are you doing now? (laughs) Well, I just finished. I shouldn't say just finished. I had a 42-year career uh, as a police officer, retired as a homicide detective uh, just a couple years ago. Uh, and now moving on to a speaking career, uh, I was the keynote speaker for Make-A-Wish for over 30 years and uh, developed that into a new speaking career, writing a book, we're making a movie, and started another nonprofit called the Ripple Effect Foundation. And what's that? Ripple Effect Foundation, it, it's, uh, we're still putting it together. It's going to be a uh, nonprofit that is going to enhance other charities. Um, for everything well-established charities from the, the USO, the US Vets, the VA, to up-and-coming charities that need help. We're going to work with individuals uh, for both autistic children and our wounded warriors, which do not receive any type of benefits from the VA administration for the service dogs. And the service dogs cost approximately $58,000. And then we're going to go into communities also that have been devastated by natural disasters, fires, hurricanes, or whatever, and get the uh, community involved with fundraising to help rebuild those communities. So, I think I know from your story what made Frank Frank um, and why you move forward in the world to make a difference in such a beautiful way. So I'm not even going to ask because you really laid that out and it was beautiful to hear about your friend, you know, pointing out the blessings you were getting. I remember thinking as I was dragging my eight kids through life and everybody was helping us in the arms of others. If it wasn't for all the others, we wouldn't make it through. And it's kind of the same. So I get that. So tell us, we're almost out of time. What do you want to put attention to? What do you want to um, share with others with all this knowledge and all this experience? What do you think is the greatest gift you can give now to the listeners? And I'm going to couch that a little. Most of my listeners are parents with autistic children or they're caregivers that work with autistic children. Some are teachers and some are uh, doctors, but mostly we're talking about caregivers and parents. So when you think in terms of that audience and all your life experience, and I know that you did some iPads and some different things and, and that you've got all this stuff just starting up, what do you want to share that you think will change their lives? Just care, just love. Um, and again, you mentioned the iPads for autistic children. I got involved with that. Uh, that's a brand new uh, subject can, can communicate with these iPads and have been involved with several fundraisers and how to get these. Uh, the service dogs for autistic children was a, a eye-opener for me. A very close friend of mine, her granddaughter is autistic, and they went through the training center in Oceanside, California, um, 
to get the dog and then train the parent and the child. And I, I observed that firsthand, how they can calm that child down when it needs to be. It's just an amazing process. But the biggest thing, too, is just understand the child. That's all. Just understand. Have compassion. Yes. And maybe pass a little of you. What was your friend's name, the one that mentored you and taught you how to look at life a little bit differently? Wando DeBeal. I don't even think I can say that, but one. Wando DeBeal. Yeah. I mean, that was, that, to me, this is the greatest part of the story, is to remember to always do that, to turn the coin over and look at the other side. Um, so how hard will it be for you to get this uh, new foundation going? Is that a really huge undertaking, and we're looking at years and years before it's really solid? Or um, is it something you're just dabbling with, and you're really into the speaking? You want to speak to that just for a second? Well, we've, we've uh, filed and obtained our 501c3 from Internal Revenue Service, so we are official. We haven't lost. I've been developing a board of directors, and I've got some, some great names on there. I've got Greg Reed, best-selling author. I've got David Stanley. You may not know his name, but you know his stepbrother's name, Elvis Presley. Oh, my. I've got, <laughs> yes. I've got Tanya Brown. Uh, you may not know her name. No, I know her, know, and she's been on the show. Her name. <laughs> I, are uh, developing a partnership on speaking tours together. Uh, we've got several speaking things coming up, uh, in fact, this month, and we did a couple last month. Uh, I've got another lady uh, for the fashion industry back in the early 70s named Clarissa Burt, who was one of the top fashion models. Uh, but all of these people I have, they have what I call a big Rolodex. So when we do officially launch, they've got the contact that can get us involved. What we're doing now in this is waiting for our website development or social media, Facebook development, and once that's there, um, we can launch. We've set up bank accounts, and we'll get going on it. It'll take a year or so to really get involved in, as in any nonprofit, but I hope within five years we're going to be one of the top-rated ones in Charity Navigator, which uh, oversees all the charities, make sure they're doing the right thing. You know, you just said something that brought some, um, a fact to mind that I think is important for families of autism. Very often families of autism, they sort of segregate themselves and they cocoon themselves into their home and try not to get out into the community too much. Now, sometimes it's the opposite, but, but I'm speaking to the ones that are doing that. When you mentioned the big Rolodex and the, you know, the person who's very connected and networked, and when you mentioned how recognizing that other people are helping you, it makes me want to sort of shine a light on the fact that if, if you cocoon in your house, there's no one can help you, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah. You got to you got to get out there and meet people and and connect if you want to make a difference for your family and for others. Frank, you've been an amazing, most wonderful guest. I hope you come back later when when the just come back because, because you're just so fantastic. And I just love everything that you've done and accomplished. If you never did another thing, you've done more than most. And I want to thank you for that. Yeah, and if we could mention uh, people are interested in following what I'm doing, 
Um, go Absolutely. I was afraid to ask. Yeah. Please do. No, no. Tell them how to follow you, how to find you, how to send a, a pitch to you to say, hey, I know this person. You might want to know them. Definitely, definitely. Uh, we could use the help. Like I said, we're putting together a movie. Universal Studios has got that. So that's in production right now. But my website is wishfan one the number onecom And you can also follow me on Facebook. Frank Shankless on Facebook. Awesome. And I'll also put a write-up with a link so that if they want to find you and they don't want to listen to the whole show again to find out how, they just have to go to the write-up and, and grab the link and they'll be able to find you. And I happen to know somebody who works with um, uh, Dogs for Soldiers to help them with post-traumatic stress disorder, so I might be putting you two together in case you don't already know them. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciated having you on the show, and I, uh, I hope to get to know you much better over the years to come. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy talking right. to you. You're welcome. One of my message, closing messages, everyone can be a hero. Oh, that's perfect. Let's just leave it there. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Well, that was Frank Shankowitz, the creator of Make-A-Wish Foundation. If ever there was a group of people that deserve uh, attention and kudos, it's Make-A-Wish. And having Frank here to tell you how it all began, that's pretty exciting. It's also exciting because... The story I began with is now going to close. So I'm going to be both the, okay, 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 great guest giveaway, and stories from the road in one fell swoop. Because I'm going to finish that opening story and show you how that turns into a gift. Okay, so in many ways, a tangible one as well. So here I am. So I'm leaving the grocery store. If you remember, the man said this mean thing to my son, and I'm like, okay, and I get his wife upset with him. And I'm leaving the grocery store, and I'm thinking, all right, well, that's fine. I got his wife mad at him, but what did I really change, and and how was that for my son? I mean, and how was that for me? I think my son rocks. I mean, I think he's awesome. I enjoy every moment with him. Having somebody speak to him that way is just completely not okay. But more than that, it means he heard it. And I turned it into an argument or a fight. or And so now he's being defended. And so it's like that thing that I mentioned with Frank where you end up sort of against the rest of the world. It's me and you against the world. And that isn't the world I want him to grow up in. That isn't what I want to have happen. So I keep this in my head of how do I create something? I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I'm going to share it with you anyways. How do I create something that is going to reach the minds of the folks that aren't already looking to love the disabled? Right? Reach the minds of the folks who aren't already looking to care about the terminally ill. Reach the mind of the, you hear what I'm saying? Like, the people who don't want to care aren't looking. They're not listening. So we can talk all we like. They're not on, you know, they're not in my audience space. So I'm doing my work. I'm going all over the world, helping different brain disorders, primarily autism. I'm doing the podcast. I'm doing all these things. And one of the things that happened was I had a call from Make-A-Wish. And they said that there was a family with a cerebral palsy girl that 
wanted me to come and play with that little girl and that I was to be her wish. She didn't want Disneyland. She did all the things they thought that she would want. She was like, nah. <laughs> she wanted me to come and play with her. And apparently they'd heard about me and her mom had shown her footage of me playing with other kids. And, you know, so anyways, they, I said, of course, yes. <laughs> so I went, and this was a wonderful family. She actually had adopted many kids, all different disabilities. I felt like I was home, only she outdid me because she had nine and I only have eight. (laughs) And um, this beautiful girl that I came to play with was so inspirational for me that when I and, you know, played with her and saw her grow and saw her change in much the same way that Frank is discussing. When a child is happy and excited and sees a future for themselves, that doesn't necessarily mean they won't still be terminal. But it does mean that they will have joy and energy and be optimally capable while they are with us. And so... I played with her and I played with her and she gained all these skills and and she got to where she could actually swallow her own spit and they could take the spit tube away and she could, you know, actually talk a little bit. She had 12 clear words by the end and she'd never had a single word. It was very exciting. She was just in a wheelchair all belted up and, and confined, but she'd found a way to become a part of things. And she died. And it was so hard. It was was just hard. And I found myself going, why did I even bother? Eventually I found my way to that answer. And that answer has to do with the value of life. Valuing a human being. Valuing your moments. Your every second. Your every bit of play. And not worrying about the rest. Because life's just about the moment you're in. And then I thought I'd found my story. The story that I could make sort of a comic book and put in places and the unsuspecting person (laughs) would pick up and read. So it looks like a comic book. It's written in rhyme and it's got little cartooning and, um, and it's very, very thin like a comic book and it's unsuspecting. So I think you should buy it and I think you should put it places. It's called Cerebral Palsy and the Wingmaker. But even if you don't buy it, at least one person today ought to ask for it. Because this book does that very special thing. It talks to the people that are not in our choir and says, value me just because I am. And I'm very proud of it. So if you want it, be the first person to send me an email that says, um, valuing people in the subject line, and I will give it to you. Send that to mom, M-O-M, and then the number four, and then evermore. So it reads mom forevermore at Juno, not Gmail, J-U-N-O dot com, and you will get it. And everybody else, go on, buy it. You know, I do all this good stuff. I can use the money flow to do more good stuff. So, uh, and then put it places, you know, put it, put it.
put it in the dentist office where someone who never thought he was going to care about that sort of thing might pick it up. All right. This has been a wonderful show. We were listening to Frank Shankwitz from Make-A-Wish Foundation, and now Ripple is going to be the next thing out there. It's going to help our autism people. And you can see how the things come together in life from my story and his. I started with autism, ended up with Make-A-Wish, and and he started with Make-A-Wish, ended up helping with autism. It's all one community. We're all one thing. We're human beings trying to love each other. Let's do that. All right? Thank you for being here, because without you, I would just be talking to myself, and you've been listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of A New Spin on Autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Can't hear you 